this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever wanted to try to get inside the head of an acquirer? Really try to figure out why companies make an offer to buy a business? Try to understand what drives value in their mind, some of the things that they're concerned about before making an acquisition. Well, my next guest, Frank Cottle, provides a unique glimpse inside the mind of a buyer because he's literally bought and sold dozens of companies. The interview starts where we drill into the sale of a company called Highmark, uh, which was a software business and an information data business, I should say, that ultimately was acquired by Lufthansa. And Frank talks about that acquisition and the decision to sell, but what I think was more interesting with some of the criteria he looks at for companies to buy. And so to get you inside the head of an acquirer and tell you the story about Highmark, here's Frank Cottle. Frank Cottle, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much. Great to, great to be able to join you, John. Yeah, so we're going to start off and talk a little bit about this company, Highmark. Um, now, I understand you acquired the business. Tell me a little bit about what you saw in the company that was worth buying. Uh, at the time, we were acquiring a, a variety of companies uh, around the travel industry in particular. Uh, and Highmark was uh, tr- probably the leading company for, it was at the time actually, the leading company for data aggregation and reporting across the travel industry. Basically, uh, it had contracts with almost 100% of the global Fortune 1000, uh, and those contracts caused it to track all of the travelers of all of those companies and align their actual travel against the contracts that those companies had with various vendors, and then to report back on them. And so you went to acquire this company, but it sounds like there was a we involved, meaning it wasn't just you writing the check. There was others involved. Maybe talk a little bit about that structure. That that is true. There was a a group of us that had been formed into a single organization and supported actually by Merrill Lynch. Um, And they provided the funding necessary for us to acquire a, a variety of companies, which we then consolidated and resold. Talk to us about the the funding by Merrill Lynch. Is that like a, a like a line of credit that Merrill is guaranteeing, or are they putting equity into the business? What that sounds kind of foreign for a lot of our guys, I would imagine. It's, it sounds foreign to me. Yeah, it was actually a combination of debt and equity, um, and the debt was uh, participatory mezzanine style debt, and the equity was just simple equity. Um, it was a more of a private equity type structure than a venture type structure, and so. You were leading this group or a member of this group? I, I was really a member of it. Um, I was responsible for acquisitions and, and, and a lot of dispositions. Uh, and there were eight of us uh, that joined together in the group, sort of a good old boys club, if you will. Uh, and uh, it worked out quite nicely. How did you get involved in that? I mean, did you, have you, did you create some wealth that you injected into this investment group? 
Um, no, not really. I mean, I had been fortunate throughout the years and I had had a, a background both in operating my own businesses as well as um, a brief stint uh, in M&A with an investment banking firm. Uh, so I was ready, willing, and able and capable, uh, but none of us really put up substantial uh, wealth individually uh, so much as organized the capital from uh, resources that we're able to do so, such as Merrill. So you guys were, I mean, I hate to make it sound so simplistic, but kind of like middlemen uh, looking for these deals, bringing them, buying them, and then ultimately looking to flip them. Uh, yes, I, I think that's a good th shot thought. Um, the, it was a consolidation activity, uh, and the middleman's role had a predefined goal of the consolidating several like and similar companies into a larger structure, which then would create more value and would get uh, taken into either the public marketplace or um, sold to a much larger company that uh, had the appetite for it. So you were trying to stitch together a few companies that you could then go sell yeah. as a collective. Right. Got it. I, I, I think you, you, you refer to as build to sell. Well, we were building to sell. Got it. Got it. And so you had this company, Highmark, um, but you it sounds like you were also on the hunt for other acquisitions. Did you make other acquisitions of a similar nature? Uh, yes. Throughout the tenure of our effort together, which was about three years, we actually acquired 44 companies. Um, and, um, so it was, it was quite a, quite a large effort actually. Got it. And so how long were you thinking of holding Highmark as an investment before flipping it? I mean, did you have sort of a time horizon in mind? Uh, about three to five years, about three to five years. Um, I, I don't think time is so important as what you can do with it. And, and sometimes it takes a few years, sometimes it's magic and it just happens overnight. And sometimes an overnight success takes 10 years. Uh, so I, you don't have, we never had necessarily a time element so much as a return requirement. And what was that? We wanted to get a, a specific re return. What was the return you were looking for? Uh, our internal rate of return requirement was about 40%. Got it. So for in lay person's terms, is that 40% a year or 40% of the lifetime of the hold of the asset? 40% a year compounding against the capital that we'd invested into the project. And the capital being both your own personal capital, though be it limited, as well as Merrill's capital. Correct. And did you take a management fee as well, being this investor group? Did, did you get a manager fee or is it were you just participating in the upside and the equity? Absolutely. <laughs> I think one of the reasons one uh, goes through an activity like this is specifically for the management fees and upside that comes along with that. Otherwise, you wouldn't bring in outside money. You would just use your own money. And what, um, what was the management fee? Oh, there was a variety of fees, um, acquisition fees, um, ongoing fees. We were able to revalue the company once in the middle of the transaction uh, uh, to re realign the positions. And there was a bonusing uh, program uh, for returns over a certain amount. Uh, so it was, it was very standard what you would see for any large management workout structure. And I would say that the value of that fee over the value of the transaction was probably around 20% of the value of the transaction. 
Got it. And so when you saw this company, Highmark, who had like a virtual monopoly on data in the travel you know, space, you must have, you, when I say you, I'm meaning you and the other seven investors in the fund, you must have seen something in that business where you said, we can make this thing grow in value at the rate of at least 40% a year over the whole period, could be three, could be five years. Um, what was it that you saw in, in Highmark that allowed you to think that you could grow it so quickly in such value? I think synergistic relationships with a lot of the existing customer base, um, the capacity to scale the technology itself that by adding additional products, um, reporting type products could become a little more sophisticated. Uh, and finally, uh, some of the other companies we were acquiring were auditing companies. So we could look at the expense of a corporate client from two different sides. Uh, and that gave us an advantage in providing better value to the customer, which is always really the key, I think, to most profitability. Um, the, the best way to run a company is by figuring out the best way to create value for your customer, not just yourself. Uh, and so we, that was part of our, uh, method of thought and, uh, those things brought us together. And Highmark was, uh, as you said, had, a, had, you know, 90 plus percent of the data. Did you guys c consider competing with them and, and collecting the data on your own in some fashion? Was that part of the consideration? Not, not really. I think uh, in, in our thought process, uh, when it comes down to those types of decisions, it, it's really more of a, do you have the team that can do that? Not do you have the technical capability that can do that, the, the, the expertise. Um, there's so much nuance. We all talk about data and big data and things today. And, and there's so much nuance to turning data into information and changing information to knowledge and changing that into an actionable item. And that takes a, a tremendous, not skill set, but understanding of the product itself. And I don't think we had that understanding on our own without buying the team uh, as opposed to just developing or having the tech. What kind of revenue is Highmark doing when you bought them? They're doing about 15 million. Got it. And so you bought this company. Um, can we talk about what you bought it for in terms of either value or multiple of revenue or whatever? Um, we paid, uh, uh, it was a private company, so let's talk EBITDA for a minute. Uh, we paid about 10, 11 times EBITDA for the company. Got it. Which again, you know, it sounds... And, 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 we, and we also had a, a cap, created a capital insertion to the company for growth. So the the founders of the company were was it just one founder that yes, was running? Yes, there was two two partners, but one ninety uh, percent majority uh, owner. Got it. And and did you lock him or her in when you bought it, or how did you structure Absolutely. their sort of? Oh, you did. Absolutely. Yeah, I think our our model was a little different in that uh, we uh, acquired uh, the company. Um, and then allowed at a certain point in time for the recapitalization of the company. And that recapitalization allowed the owner to improve their position, not just us improve ours. So uh, he grew uh, actually uh, as well or better uh, than we did inside of the transaction and uh, had the capital through the transaction to drive the company uh, to a, 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 a much better position. So sort of explain that in a lay 
in a lay terms way. So um, recapitalization. So so when I hear in, in a lay person's sort of lens here, when I hear you bought this business for 10 times EBITDA, what I'm hearing is you wrote a check uh, and the business owner uh, let's say they were generating a million dollars of EBITDA. You know, you wrote a check for ten million bucks, and and the business owner rode off into the sunset. It sounds like the acquisition model was very different than that. So maybe in in lay terms, uh, knowing that most people don't know what recapitalization means, what what exactly are you saying you did? I, I'm guessing you didn't write a ten million dollar check to let the business owner kind of ride off into the sunset. No, no, that him riding off into the sunset would have been a disaster for for both of us, he wouldn't have made as much money and we would have had a company without leadership. Um, so think, think of it like this. Let me create an a, a, a example and try and use some simple numbers. Let's assume a company is worth $10 million. <clears throat> we go in and say, okay, companies, we all agree the company is worth $10 million. Um, we'll put in $5 million and buy 50% of the company and you, the owner can have 50% of the company. Um, <clears throat> and, However, the money stays in the company. So we've put our money in. Now the owner then has that additional $5 million to grow the company. And the company, which had a EBITDA multiple, let's say of 10 in its valuation model, once it's grown and it's showing that growth on a accelerated basis, maybe it now has an EBITDA multiple valuation of $15 million um, uh, or 15 times instead of uh, 10 times, excuse me. Um, uh, so the company's valuation model has increased. And then based on that, you bring in a, a new layer of investors to take out the old layers of investors, us or someone else, um, uh, at a profit. Uh, and that new group comes in Well, the ownership is able to take their percentage of that profit too. And then the ownership has two options. They can either take the money out, buy new Ferraris and nice houses, or they can leave the money in. And in our case, dilute us down to a smaller percentage. So the owner was able to gain a percentage of the company back that he had sold. And so when it ultimately was sold, the Lufthansa group, uh, he was in a very, very good position. Got it. So this is a classic PE deal where you talk about the second bite of the apple where, yep, you know, you second, third, fourth, it, it, it's infinite. Yeah. Um, you know, companies never die. They just get recapitalized, bought and sold. Um, <clears throat> so every iteration is a little different based on the management team or what the goals of the company are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've had a few, you know, conversations with the owners, o owner of, of Highmark over the years, but what was, you know, what was your sense of his motivation in doing this deal? Why did he want to give up control, give up, you know, for accelerated growth? Accelerated growth. Uh, I, I think most entrepreneurs have to make a hard choice at some point in time. They either <clears throat> say, I want to keep complete control. Uh, it's my baby. I'm going to do it my way. And I I'm going to create a lifestyle company. And many, many people do wonderful jobs at that. And some of those companies become huge. Um, but they're lifestyle companies, basically, driven by one thought process. Other owners say, you know what? I think I'm onto something. I think if I have more capital, I can scale it very, very rapidly. Um, and uh, they decide that it's worth losing control if so long as they're comfortable with the investment team behind them. A good example to use, you can think of Facebook real simply. 
um, <clears throat> uh, Facebook, if it uh, was an entrepreneur's lifestyle company, uh, probably wouldn't be what it is today. It took capital to rapidly accelerate the growth of the company, and that required dilution in equity to the point where the current owner no longer has complete absolute control. I mean, you use Facebook as, a, as an interesting example. You could use Uber. There's, there's lots of sure. examples where, where these things work out really, really well. Um, I think, you know, we could also point to examples where they go horribly wrong, where the owner yes. loses control and, and <clears throat> ends up with little or nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, w- I was actually in a, uh, a, a, a midsize uh, equity group, uh, had a, a private sort of pitch session the other day here in Newport Beach, and they invited me to come along and see if <laughs> come along, come shopping, so to speak. And and so the stories told by several of the serial entrepreneurs uh, kind of went like this: Well, this is my third company, and I'm only willing to do this, this, and this, and this because of my first two companies. Just what you were talking about happened. I got diluted out. I got pushed out. I got managed out by some rather uh, either foolish, because I think it's foolish to push management out. If, if you like them, keep them. Do everything you can to help them. Um, but uh, most entrepreneurs doing that uh, find themselves not real happy campers. Uh, it really has to be careful. And I've done the same thing. I've I've sold a, a company into a, a, a group once, a large fund once, on that basis where they're the investor. And they wrote it's a very nice eight-figure check, just as a bonus to sign with them. We signed with them, and the first 60 days, I looked at my partner, he looked back at me, we went down and had lunch, and I said, nope, it ain't going to happen. And we wrote that check right back to him, because we knew that over the next few years, it was going to be a nightmare. I said, life's too short. So that's a tough decision to make, too. So what counsel would you give entrepreneurs evaluating that sort of offer, a PE offer? How, how would you counsel them to evaluate that? Boy, really listen to your gut. I mean, and get, get, all, get all of your instincts up and your emotions out, no matter how fast you want to grow or how much you want to grow. Uh, you're getting married and you know how painful it is divorce can be. So just exercise caution. Uh, at the same time, it, it's hard to exercise caution, be really decisive, but you have to do both. Yeah. You, you have to say no very quickly and yes, very carefully. I guess one of the things that, that I've heard most frequently about entrepreneurs who, who take on a private equity investor recapitalization, as you, uh, as you point out is you know, they, the, the money guys or gals don't really get the culture. They, you know, they're good at spreadsheets and, and the, the kind of, you know, big picture strategy stuff, but they're, they're forcing down my throat, you know, business decisions that, that are so obviously out of alignment with what our vision is, what our values is, what our cultural makeup is. And, and as a, you know, as a founder now at a minority position, I, I can't, I can't control it anymore. I, I think those are the things that, that entrepreneurs feel so deeply kind of slighted by is that uh, I, I don't think it's the, it's the hard financial sense. Should we charge X for this product or Y for this price? It's those sort of cultural nuances that 
entrepreneurs pride themselves so much in. I mean, in the case of Highmark, did you run into situations with the owner where, you know, he wanted to take one strategy, you wanted to take a different and, and you had those sort of, um, conflicts? A, a little bit. Yes. Um, uh, and I think it, it take, it takes an understanding on both parts. Um, you have to be a good problem solver in either case, whether you're the entrepreneur or you're the investment group. Um, you have to look past your own rules and first look at the company and say, what's best for the company and the company's customers? Because if you don't, you kind of live by that rule, the company itself won't succeed and everybody fails. So your first goal is not to squeeze the investment or push the management, but to really look at how do we build a strong company? That in itself can cause disagreement, but if you change your focus to say, how do we service the customer best? Again, you can have some disagreements, but if you stay focused on those two things, the customer first and the company second, the returns that you want to make, you probably have a much better chance at. So talk about returns for Highmark. So, so it was doing $15 million in revenue when you bought it. How long did you hold it for? Uh, it got held in its first iteration for about three years and after it had been recapitalized for about three or four more. So talk about that. So, so you, you guys acquired it. Mm -hmm. uh, when you say you recapitalize it, that means the, that you got another private equity, sort of another money tranche in mm -hmm. that diluted mm -hmm. you guys further. What that, was the, that is correct. Okay. What was the, what was the increase in multiple you were able to garner at that recapitalization? Boy, um, let me think. From about 10. It probably we got about a 60% increase in multiple, but we'd had about a hundred percent increase in revenue. Hmm. Um, so, uh, again, reconfiguring the company, uh, um, um, changing its product line and adding some new things to it. Um, so the overall increase, I, I can't calculate that in my head, but it was, it was quite, quite effective. So kind of, you're going from sort of a 10 times EBITDA when you bought it to maybe a 16. Ish? 15, 16, 15, yeah. 16. Interesting. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And, and then that, 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 that's nice in and of itself, but if you're not adding, uh, adding revenue or, or, or net income, um, then it becomes a lot less meaningful. So you really have to focus on both things simultaneously. One's a business model or a product shift focus. The other is a pure sales focus, uh, you know, sales to the bottom line. And you bought the business because you thought there were synergies in the three years that you actually held it before the first recapitalization. What were some of the, how were you able to double the revenue? Was it the same uh, things you thought uh, you were buying? Uh, no, no. Uh, we ended up doubling the revenue, uh, not by benefiting from the synergy. I think uh, cross-selling, um, gosh, this is going to be better for everybody. All of that, a lot of times is a pipe dream. And in this case, it, it turned out to be a a bit of, of, of that circumstance. Uh, we didn't get, realize as much from that, but what we were able to do was re-engineer the business model. Uh, instead of paying customers, paying for fixed reports and paying for storage and this and that, we ended up doing a, a report sold literally by the byte. Um, uh, B Y T E. So the larger the reports, the more we're able to charge. And what the customers like better is if they needed a lot, they paid a lot when they didn't need a lot, they didn't pay a lot. So they like the variable capability. 
And what we found is that as we improved our reporting structure more and more and more, that gosh darn, they just wanted bigger and bigger reports. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of that. And, and all of the, by scaling, the analytics were able to be improved substantially. Uh, and that, that gave more value to the reports themselves. And how was the owner, because the owner would have contrived or conceived of the first uh, kind of selling model that got him up to the first $15 million in revenue. Um, the change to the byte-based selling uh, would have in some ways kind of flown in the face of his original strategy. It would have, I guess, in a lot of ways, you know, made him look stupid for the original way you priced it. Did, did he well, uh, push uh, back actually, at all? Actually, yeah, actually, it was just the opposite. It was his idea. He just didn't have the staying power to take the company through the process of change. Interesting. So he just didn't have the money or the yeah. the, the courage, the courage, the courage to, to push do, through, the courage to do it by himself. Uh, great guy, um, very, very very talented gentleman. Um, uh, <clears throat> but he did not have the, uh, uh, you know. It, once you're down a path, when, little changes are easy, and, and, and that's what you should be doing a lot of times in business, lots of little changes, uh, little adjustments on your course. Um, but big changes are sometimes expensive or take a lot of courage because if you don't know if you, can out, if you can change your model, which may have a big hole in your revenues or a hole in, 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 in your, your profitability for a while, um, that, that takes a different thing. Why was he uh... – emboldened, given more courageous with you guys at the table? Because on one hand, I can say, you know, if he was able to take 50% of his equity off the table, put that money in his pocket, uh, you know, buy the beach house or whatever he wanted to buy, uh, I can see why he might be more, you know, courageous with the second half of his equity, because he's got his basic Maslow hierarchy of needs kind of covered. But in your right. case, it wasn't that way. You bought half of the company, but but were you allowing him to, to put that money in his pocket or it, you were insisting that it stay in, in the business for growth capital? Um, a certain amount of the money came out to his pocket, mm. uh, say half of it and the rest of it stayed in the business. I see. So therefore he felt more courageous making big business decisions. Cause I think a lot of entrepreneurs, sure. if they haven't paid off their house, they're still, you know, they've still got a mortgage. They still got car payments. I think, you know, in, in my experience, some of the, the risk aversion comes from, well, if I risk my business and it all goes south, oh, yeah. I've got nothing, right? Well, you know, you, you, you can only sell your business once. Right. I mean, <laughs> or usually you can only sell it once. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the fear that comes along with that and, and, and the caution that should come along with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a life-changing decision. Um, uh, is, it just goes without saying. And, and the bigger the deal uh, the more flexibility people have, this was a moderate sized transaction, but, but, you know, good enough to do the things that you're talking about. Um, uh, but still it depends on the individual. I, I, I know a lot of people that would look at that and say, oh, I put two and a half million. Geez, that's chump change. I know a lot of people who say two and a half million. Wow. I could live on that forever. So it, it really depends on a lot of where you're coming from and you buy the big house on the beach. Well, how big is that house? You know, a big house on a beach is a certain size to somebody and a certain size to someone else. Um, so it, it all depends with the ambitions and how well that entrepreneur knows their business and what they know it can do. Um, 
So it, it, it it's not necessarily selling when you're doing what this occurred in this case. It wasn't a fellow selling out. It was a fellow even with us looking at his business, being willing to sell a percentage of it in exchange for equity that would take him to the next level uh, as long as he met the investment requirements that had been agreed to. And he ended up, as I say, he ended up doing better than we did. And that was part of our construct. We wanted him to do better than we did. We knew that if he had those incentives and was working for himself instead of us, the probability of success would be much greater than if he was just working for these dweeb investors. <laughs> what were the in, in, uh, incentives you put in place for him that he had to hit? And what were the ramifications of him not hitting them? Um, the incentives were almost all uh, uh, driven by uh, uh, more equity. Uh, he was able to improve his position inside of the company, basically acquire back what he had sold on favorable terms. And that's a very common incentive when you come into mid-sized companies like this that are that ha- are going to have long-term growth. Options, you mean? Uh, 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 options is, is a, an easy way to look at it. We had a di- little different model, but yeah, options, that works. Um, uh, so that, that's a huge incentive if, if a person is driven that way. The daily revenue or the daily uh, income incentives on his part were somewhat uh, uh, de minimis. Uh, his... Lifestyle requirements were met by his uh, current salary, uh, so there was a, a nice edge to that as we grew. But he wasn't driven by, I want to make five hundred instead of three hundred. Uh, that wasn't driving him. Got it. And so, what were the ramifications of not hitting the incentive-based payouts or the you know the goals you put in place? Suicide by investor. Not sure what you mean by that. He'd have lost his company. And so, maybe walk me through that. So. What, how would he have lost his company? Because wouldn't he have still owned half of it? He, he, he would still own half of it. But if he, if he had not made certain incentives based on the cap, capital requirements that had been put in, it would have required additional capital and therefore dilution uh, to survive him out. So some risks were taken in this particular case. And that allowed um, for the equity to have a second shift that would not favor him uh, if certain uh, targets weren't met. So let me walk you, let me walk through that a little bit more. So so if the targets were not met and the targets were top line revenue, growth, I'm assuming profitability, expansion, those sorts of targets, like yeah. quantitative yeah. objectives t- or things. T- typical typical growth objectives. Got it. So let's say he misses the them by a long shot. What what would have happened? You would have maybe just walked through the legal construct that would allow you to basically take control of the company. Uh, if, let's look at the business construct uh, simply first. Sure. Um, <clears throat> the capital was injected for the purposes of growth. So his, if he went, if he didn't achieve the growth, but still went through the burn rate of the capital, he would have gone through a dilution because it would have required additional capital for the company to survive. Couldn't, to couldn't, he, have just, couldn't he have just slowed down? Couldn't he have burned through yeah. the capital and then just put he, the thing in autopilot and slowed down? He, 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 could, have, he could have done that more slowly, um, but that wasn't the plan, and he had the courage to push it. So he, he took the risk. Sure. No, I, I get that he he took the risk and it worked out. Well, I'm trying to figure out what would have happened had he chosen a different path just from the standpoint of, let's say he had said, okay, we're going to pour all this cash in, we're going to grow this sucker, and business strategy fails. The bites thing doesn't take, and he's unable to get the thing to go. Um, at that point, could he not just then just put the brakes on, continue to hold on to his equity, 
and say, well, listen, sorry, guys, it didn't work. Um, yes, but there were mechanisms in place. Remember, it was a debt and equity structure. So there are some mechanisms in place that um, would have made that very difficult for him to sustain his, his position. Maybe could you, could you describe that in more detail? I'm not sure what you mean by there were mechanisms in place. Um, <clears throat> um, there was clawbacks uh, against his stock. Uh, that if he didn't make certain marks, we were able to take a percentage of his stock along with the request. If we had to put up additional capital or if he didn't make his marks, we were able to take back a percentage of his stock. Got it. Got it. So dilute him from 50% yeah. down to something more Let's significant. Say, yeah. Do you think when you buy... Now that's that's fairly common, by the way. In, yeah. In experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hence hence all the horror stories. When you Like buy... I say, suicide by investors. <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard that before, but I love it. Um, when you buy a company, do you think the entrepreneur is is aware of the potential downside in in the way you're describing? Um, when we do, I would say yes. Again, again, our goal always is to make that person more money than ourselves. Uh, it, it's again, we, we're we're not like a ruthless investment banking group. We, we really try very hard to uh, cause companies to succeed, um, not to take advantage of positions. Uh, it just, it works better. At least it works better for us. Um, uh, being nice instead of ruthless seems to pay off in our case. Well, again, uh, it, it worked in the case of Highmark for sure, because you guys then did go on to sell the business three years after the recapitalization to Lufthansa. Maybe just touch on that a little bit. Um, the big German speak, airline. You, got, you gotta speak high German to do that. <laughs> uh, no, um, uh, um, in the travel industry, a lot of the companies that are publicly recognized are either part of an a larger investment group um, uh, and have other interests in the travel industry. Uh, uh, so Lufthansa isn't just an airline, it's an owner in various parts of reservation systems and booking systems and things of that nature as well. And the travel industry really rides on its data. Uh, you've heard of Sabre, you may have heard of a company called Pegasus. Um, these companies really, really control either the hotel sector uh, or not control them, but control the data and the, the reservations and booking processes in the hotel sector or the flight sector. So Lufthansa being parts of various booking systems as well, um, having the data that from all where everybody was going in the world really helped them on their res business also. So there are multiple synergies as you go, as, as, as you speak with that data. And, and that's the one area where, uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, cross selling and, you know, we'll be able to cut this expense and that expense, all the synergies that people typically talk about in business. I think most of them are pipe dreams. The one place where that is not true, where it's the exception is with data. Uh, if you can buy a company that knows stuff, and you can use that stuff in 10 other places to, to improve your other businesses, that's the ultimate benefit that you get. Um, so knowing where every traveler is going, knowing where every traveler is staying, knowing how much they spent, who they spent it with, is a tremendous value uh, benefit to anybody in that business. And so that's the data they acquired. So you bought Highmark for 10, you recapitalized it at 15 times roughly EBITDA. What did Lufthansa buy it for? 
um, over 15. Uh, I don't want to say 20, but it was probably 16 or 17. Got but it. the rev, but the revenues had again, materially changed. Got it. Frank, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what you're doing now, because you've, you've, uh, you've got a really exciting business in Alliance. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, about this company and, and the approach you take to acquiring businesses today. Well, we're in the, uh, we've always been, uh, for a part of our efforts for the last 35 years, we're in the serviced office industry. And what that means is that, um, we provide office space that it's fully serviced. That should be self-evident, but we provide all the clerical, secretarial, administrative support, all the fixturization and the furniture, as well as all of the uh, IT and telephony infrastructure to our client companies in one flexible package. Uh, people sign service agreements with us for space in these services, not leases. Um, and the value proposition there is, is moving very much in our favor. We were a pioneer in that industry back in the early 80s. Uh, and now we're fortunate to be seen as, a, as, as one of the larger, more stable and diversified companies in that industry. Um, the thing that's the most exciting really is the way that offices are virtualizing. Um, most people these days, uh, you know, they used to have a big corner office, but now they maybe have three little offices in three different places where they do different things with different customers. Um, uh, combining people, place, and technology into a simple service agreement was a revolutionary process. Um, but like all revolutions, it takes 10 or 20 years to get them started. Uh, so our industry in the last five to seven years, really since the beginning of uh, the recessionary period in 2007 and eight has just taken off trends in the mobility in the workplace and, and technology have had a big uh, input um, um, uh, as well as employment practices today. In fact, I was just at a meeting with, with one of the, the, the largest private equity firms in the world. In fact, the largest private equity firm in the world uh, in uh, London several weeks ago and they were looking at their fixed asset portfolio and scratching their heads uh, and saying, holy cow, let's take a, a company. Let's take Cisco as an example. Cisco's a huge client of theirs. Lots and lots of office space globally across a massive portfolio. And they're saying Cisco's growing. Cisco's revenues are growing. Their stock value is going up. They're hiring people, but they're taking half the space from us. They're, they're reducing the space. And the reason is that those people that Cisco were hiring are contractors, not employees. So globalization of contract labor, contracting as a process rather than fixed employment, diversification of infrastructure based on technology, allowing people to live where they want and work where they want, regard, regardless of, of what they're doing. All these trends, which are true mega trends earthwise, um, are impacting our industry and our industry is growing around 12, 13% a year, year over year, which is as fast or faster than the PC industry did in the height of the dot-com era. And Frank, in your case, you're acquiring companies. Is that right? That's true. That is true. We talked, uh, uh, you know, before we hit record, we were just sort of getting to know one another a little bit. And we, we talked about, you know, when you buy a business, uh, you see entrepreneurs making all kinds of mistakes. Maybe you could touch on some of the things that you see 
you know, as mistakes entrepreneurs make when uh, when they go to sell their company? Well, I I think the the first mistake, and I referenced it a little earlier, <clears throat> they may know their company, uh, but they don't necessarily understand their industry holistically. So they're not able to make longer term decisions uh, on trend shifts as effectively as they should be able to. Can you give me names aside? Can you give me an example of an entrepreneur who you interacted with, you were buying his company or her company and you thought this guy or gal doesn't really understand the industry? Like maybe a specific example? Sure. Um, uh, People that are are focused on a particular geography is usually the situation. Hi, I'm the biggest guy in town. Well, you're making all your decisions based around your town, not necessarily where the world is going. So I think that's one of the the bigger things is is to be able to go up to elevation, a higher elevation and look down on your industry as opposed to getting trapped inside of your company. So know your industry, not just your company, I think is, is critically important. And the other thing that too many people are, uh, especially with smaller companies, companies in the $1 million to $5 million revenue range, the true entrepreneurial efforts with a, generally with a single owner. Um, they are worried about their households. Um, they are worried about a lot of things. Uh, and the buyer, ourselves, are not worried about those things necessarily. Uh, we're worried about growth. Um, so you, you, if people are worrying about different things, generally a deal just doesn't come together. Uh, and, and that's always always a problem. Uh, other other things that happen, uh, quite honestly, is people overcomplicate things. Um, little things become critically important that just aren't important. Uh, give me, give me a real life example. Yeah, generally, personnel factors. So um, just a real life uh, example would be great, Frank. So we can just yeah, sort of get I, our head around I, it. I would say personnel uh, issues come up all the time. Um, hi, my favorite person in the company is so-and-so. How are we going to take care of them? And you know that that's their favorite person, but that person isn't really necessarily very good. So issues around personnel in small companies become very, very important. And you have to decide whether you're going to, as, a, as an owner, uh, whether you're going to uh, deal on behalf of the shareholders or, or others, and you being the shareholder. Um, and sometimes those, those little things like that hurt deals or devalue them, uh, somehow, um, numbers don't lie. The numbers will always be the numbers. Um, a lot of people have re- unrealistic expectations about their numbers. However, uh, they think that because their names on the company, um, one thing we hear a lot of is a small company says my brand, my brand is so powerful in this market. And you look at the company and say, you've got 200 clients and nobody in the next town knows your name. So what you have is a good reputation. But they they see a company in the news that's around their industry or their sector or maybe their business model that has a big brand. And they they think that they can get a comparative value. And it just doesn't doesn't happen. Uh, You know, it's a reputation, not a brand. The, The worst thing I would say I get you one more is time. Uh, most, a lot of times, uh, sellers, remember they can only sell that company once. Uh, they aren't decisive and time kills more deals probably than anything else. Uh, dragging something out, just not responding quickly on, on either party. 
but it seems to be more the sellers not responding quickly because they're going through this dilemma of, do I really want to do this? What's really going to be the thing? What am I going to do if, if, if I sell the company? If, if those things are nagging at them, then the transaction will drag out and time is, is the big killer in most transactions. From an acquirer's perspective, um, why is why is time such a deal killer? From from your perspective, why is that such a frustrating? I mean, the the owner's busy; they're running their company. You know, playing devil's advocate. Why you know why can't you give them a couple of weeks to get the uh, get the numbers? Oh, together? I think a couple of weeks is fine. But what you see is a little decision. Each little decision sometimes a couple of weeks and turns into months and can turn into a year. Uh, and and those those sorts of things really uh, slow it down. And as someone uh, who's trying to grow their own company, uh, time is limited. Uh, so uh, there's only so many hours you can spend on a transaction of a certain size that no matter what return it's going to give you percentage-wise, it's only going to give you X amount of real dollars in return. Uh, and it's really just that the personal issues around time value of money. It, it's a, it's an internal reta- uh, rate of return on your time, not your dollars. Oftentimes that, that, that you think about such sage advice, Frank, where, where can people get in touch with you? Learn more about Alliance. What's, what's the best way for us to sort of get in touch with you? Uh, well, we just popped up uh, for the purpose of, of this call. We just popped up a website called alliancepodcast.com. Uh, that'll be uh, available uh, later this afternoon, I think, um, <clears throat> so that people can come in and, and hear this podcast itself, should they choose to. Um, but that'll also be attached to our Alliance Virtual Offices uh, uh, website. And that's a, a great spot to get a hold of myself or anyone from our team. Fantastic. Alliancepodcast.com. We'll put all that in the show notes available at builttosell.com. Frank Cottle, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Pleasure to, uh, to get to know you. My pleasure, and I'll look forward to uh, however we can help you in the future. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.